Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Stephen Fairclough, professor of psychophysiology at Liverpool John Moores University. Dr. Fairclough, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you, Jonathan? Should, should I call you Dr. Fairclough or should I call you Stephen? Just call me Stephen. Oh, that's very, that's very kind of you, Dr. Fairclough. <laughs> uh, Alright, so today's article is anxiety and performance in the British driving test. This was written in 2006. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about me choosing this article? That's my first question. Um, I mean, it's, it's an article that I kind of did, I think a little bit of a one-off. It's a bit, a bit, the only time I probably have looked at test anxiety uh, properly. Um, so it's not something that I see as part of you know, the mainstream research that I do now. But I also think it's a bit of a, how can I put it? It's a bit of a, it was a bit of a unique data collection exercise. So I, in, in one hand, I'm not surprised that you might have picked up on it because there's probably not that many papers around where we did something with, with a real test, with real consequences in the world. Yeah, I, I, I found this, this podcast is sort of in its baby stages, but I've, I've, I've got interesting reactions from people on the articles that I've chosen um, mm -hmm. A lot of people seem a bit surprised. Oh, I can't believe you chose that article, or why did you, you know, why did you choose this article? So mm -hmm. I think that's that's kind of interesting to hear. I mean, you you have you have so many publications, of course. So I wonder how you you feel about going back to two thousand and six. Where where were you in your career at that time? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I worked. Basically, from being an undergraduate, I I went to work at a research institute at a part of Loughborough University, which is in the Midlands. And uh, I worked there for a long time, 13 years, and I was working as a, what we call in the UK a contract researcher. So I was on fixed one-year and two-year contracts for 13 years. Okay. So, uh, which is is great in one sense because you get to do a lot of research and you get to do a lot of uh, get a lot of good experiences. Uh, but obviously, once you start to buy a house and, and stuff like that, it gets a little bit precarious living on these short-term contracts. So uh, at the end of the last century, I guess it was now, I, 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 uh, I completed my PhD and I started to look to, to go to a job where I had uh, permanence, kind of tenure, you know. So uh, in 2000, I joined Liverpool John Moores University, part of the School of Psychology. And at this point, because uh, obviously this work was done probably in, in 2004 or something like that, uh, I was getting to get getting my research together in a new institution. So it was very much about building up a profile and trying to do some different things to what I'd done at Loughborough. All right. So I, I, I looked at your bio. If, if people would like to check out your website, it's physiologicalcomputing.org. And a mm -hmm. uh, great website, by the way. You, you got, you got you. information about you. You got all your publications there. You actually have a podcast um, presentation. So if people want to read the article, that's probably the best way uh, to do it, I would say. Go to physiologicalcomputing.org. I'll post that link in the show notes. And again, the article that we're going to be discussing today is Anxiety and Performance in the British Driving Test. Um, on, your, on your website, uh, I read an interview that, that was done, oh, yeah. I think, in 2017 – Mm -hmm. And if I if I have this correct, so this this driving um, this this paper was done sort of before your before your PhD, 
when? No, no, it was done. No, no, it was done afterwards. I did I, when I was at Loughborough. I did a lot of work on driving behaviour, specifically applying psychophysiological measures and neurophysiological measures in in vehicles and driving simulators. And to be honest, I was looking to do something different when I came to Liverpool. But rather than, so I was gently trying to transition out of doing just driving research. And so this paper was a way of me, you know, this, this data exercise was a way of, of um, still doing driving research, but doing a different sort of driving research to what I'd done before. I see. So it said in, in the interview that you were, planning to do a master's in experimental methods oh, oh yeah that was way before that was after um that was after i'd done my phd sorry that was after sorry let me rewind that was after i'd done my undergraduate so when in the uk at that time um you could basically apply as an undergraduate student to go and do a master's course in research methods mm-hmm. um and that master's course in research methods, if you got on the course, would be the first year of your PhD. I see. So the plan was at that point, because um, this was this was really, you know, this is like the, the mid-1980s or thereabouts. Uh, I was very much interested in cognitive psychology, and that was what I was going to do. And so we got, I got an agreement from the funder uh, that if I got, uh, what we call a two-one degree in the UK, so that's kind of like the the second tier of degree quality you can get. If I got that, that I get the funding, and I went to do an interview as well. I remember, I think it was at Strathclyde University, which is in Scotland, and um, and unfortunately, the funding got pulled when my undergraduate came through. So, uh, so I was left with you know basically with nothing at that point because I couldn't I couldn't go and do the course without the funding. They decided they were just going to fund people who got first class degrees that year, and but they changed the policy you know kind of halfway through the year. So that was obviously disappointing. So I spent some time unemployed, uh, and I just started applying for research jobs. And by chance, I managed to get this research job at Loughborough University. So. You know, there's no grand plan here. It was all very haphazard, if I'm honest. So, experimental methods—that—that's mm. a bit—that's a bit of a broad term. What what exactly were you were you planning on doing before the 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 funding was pulled? Wow, uh, I'm really having to go back now. Well, I'd done um, research methods. The people used to set up these uh, masters in research methods. They'd made it broad on purpose so okay. that they could accommodate a wide range of different sorts of PhDs. So people could do, you know, anything from from social psychology, you know, through to through to cognitive psychology was the big thing then. And so I was planning to do something experimental on on cognitive psychology. Um, My undergraduate project, which I think my supervisor gave me the idea for, was about mental imagery and sentence comprehension. So, you know, some light years away from what I ended up doing. And then you you moved into ergonomics? Yeah. So when I went to Loughborough, um, I worked at a place called USAT Research Institute. So that's at Human Sciences and Advanced Technology. And that was set up by one of the professors, a guy called Brian Shackle at uh, Loughborough University. So it was his own research center. And so we were all, the majority of us all were all contract researchers. And at that point, um, the European... Union had just set up their own funding streams. Uh, 
And so this research institution grew and grew on European funding. And we ended up being, you know, significant, like 60, 60 or so researchers there, as I remember. Um, and Loughborough at that time was the kind of centre for ergonomics. So they taught ergonomics, so they had a master's in ergonomics. It's probably the only place in the country that you could study that at that time, although I think other places were were around as well. And so I was thrust into this. Well, there's two things, really. I was opened up to this world of ergonomics and studying people at work and so on. I also got opened up to things like usability. So this is like the beginning of studying human-computer interaction as well. But the other nice thing about that research institute is that it was multidisciplinary. So there were ergonomists working there, there were psychologists like me, there were computer scientists, there were people from all different sorts of backgrounds. And that was that's uh, an approach I've always liked, the multidisciplinary sort of thing. Well, this this human computer interaction, I, I I guess we can talk talk about a bit later. I'm I'm also sort of getting into that field as well, okay. o- almost yeah. by almost by accident. I I mm-hmm. I was actually planning on going to the human computer interaction uh, conference in Denmark this year, uh, which yeah. which was canceled. And then there's the computer human interaction, which is like the yeah. the 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 mixed around Kai. acronym. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kai, you mean? The yeah, so. It's funny it's pronounced Kai, right? I would think it would be Chai, but I guess it's too much yeah. like tea or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so, yeah. I don't know why why it's called Kai, but obviously Kai is the, 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 probably the biggest one. I think you were talking about HCI. Is it HCI International? Yeah, that's right. The one I was, Yeah, I was going to – I had two papers in that actually. Were you going to go uh, there this year? Yeah, I was going to I was going to be there, yeah. we was, There's a guy. There's, there's quite a lot of different workshops and some other conferences associated with that conference. Um. But I, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't actually know they cancelled it for sure because I had a correspondence with them. Uh, well, where I, well, I just yeah. got an email today, so I probably checked it. It probably like with the time lag. So if you check your yeah. email today, it probably just it probably just can't. Of course, this episode is going to be posted in June, so we probably shouldn't talk about what day <laughs> what day it is. Uh, if you're yeah. interested in the, uh, the the chai, the chai is going to be in Japan next year. So yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah. In Yokohama, so I'm definitely going to try to uh, apply to get into that. And then HCI International next year is going to be in Washington D.C., where I'm from. So oh, really? Okay. I think we'll probably end up uh, meeting up at some point. So yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. All right, well, let's let's get into this this paper, um, anxiety and performance in the in the British driving test. So can you can you lay the foundation for it? Uh, it was it was it was you had the mock test you, well, yeah, you had the sure. practice test you had or was it just a practice session a mock driving test and then the real driving test were those the the three the three yeah, stages we did we 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 basically put together a student project an undergraduate student project and the student was kim Euston, who's the third author on the paper okay. and kim was a driving instructor so she came with came in with the idea that uh you know that that basically something was going on where people were repeatedly failing the British driving test, d- d- despite her as a tutor knowing that they could do the task. Mm-hmm. So we came up with this idea that um, we would test, we would find a group of people, we would do a repeated measures test, and we would have three sessions. One would be a normal driving test. The other one would be what we call a mock driving test. Now, this is kind of almost like your last lesson before you do the formal test. Your instructor takes you out and pretends to be the examiner. Okay. 
and then we have the formal driving test. So three different conditions. Each session is about 45 minutes long. How, how did you monitor heart rate? You used an we EKG? A, we, yeah, it was, a, it was a polar device. Uh, so polar have been doing these ambulatory heart rate monitors for a long time for sports testing, really. Mm -hmm. So it was a device that was worn around the belt. Sorry, around the belt on the chest, uh, on a chest strap, uh, on a belt around the sternum. Uh, and it took an EKG, yeah, effectively. Uh, so, um, so yeah, we we took an EKG. Sorry, no, it it took an EKG, but we couldn't get at the EKG. I remember now. We had to make do with beats per minute. So it basically collected beats per minute, then it averaged it into five seconds. And and a researcher was present in all of these driving tests, correct? Yeah, Kim Kim was Kim was the. Kim was the exam was the was the driving instructor for the for the uh, people the participants. So she was there on the normal driving test. She was there when they did she did the mock test with them. But then they would go to a different person to do the formal test. Was the, was there another researcher sitting in the back monitoring the the heart rate? She did it all. She did everything. Yeah, yeah, she did. She would. She had a. She had a, like a wrist device mm -hmm. where she could where she could see what was going on on the uh on the heart rate monitor and that was really just to check that it was recording correctly right. all the way through that was just a, a signal check really now did you have any issue because i've uh, we talked a little bit briefly before uh the podcast started about how, I, how i'm interested in heart rate as well did mm -hmm. you have any issues with anyone sort of calling you out that you're only using heart rate and you're not using you know, cortisol or blood pressure or muscle tension, any of these other physiological measures? Um, I mean, that we have, I have been part of that discussion before, not for this particular paper, because you know, people recognize the fact that obviously you're in a, a car, so you're, you're, some of your options are limited in terms of what you can collect. That's, that could be meaningful. And the other thing is, is that, you know, the driving test itself is a formal thing that people have paid for in advance. So you can't really interfere with that process of testing too much, you know, because obviously we're, we're, we're measuring someone who is genuinely being evaluated. So we can't add more pressure by having a whole raft of measurement devices attached to them. That would not normally be there. But that would kind of destroy the ecological validity of the test. So we had our excuses, I guess, lined up for this particular thing but to go back to your question um when people measure <clears throat> anxiety in any forms there's a you know you've got your range of autonomic measures so things like heart rate um breathing rate um skin conductance level and so on that, that can be used um blood pressure is really tricky to measure um unobtrusively while someone is even if you have the the strap on the arm it constrains movement of the arm. So we, you know, we kind of wouldn't want to, I have used it to measure anxiety before, but I'm not a great fan of it because the act of being tested, I think stresses people to an extent. And cortisol, obviously you need saliva or urine samples to do those things. Now I have used cortisol in the past as well. And again, it's, it's usable, you don't from saliva, uh, but it's tricky because you've got to, um, it's very sensitive to diurnal rhythm, so you've got to line up all your test sessions on the same time of day. So yeah. there's, there's pros and cons, you know. It's not that one's better than the other. There's all different pros and cons depending on the testing environment. Because I, I, I agree with you. I think 
you know, especially <clears throat> nowadays with the wearable, you know, heart rate monitors, mm-hmm. for example, Fitbit, mm-hmm. it, it's, 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 it's unobtrusive and, and almost you're hoping that the, the, the participant forgets that you're actually monitoring the heart rate. That, that's the, that would be my goal for, for using mm-hmm. heart rate. But I keep running into that wall where I have to justify why I'm only using heart rate. And I, they're all, all my supervisor, my supervisors are almost implying that once I start the PhD, that heart rate's not going to be enough. And I'm going to have to mm. expand this to make it worthy of a PhD project. So I'm already s- sort of worried. I'm already starting to, to worry about that. How can I expand it? I don't really want to go into those other physiological, like you said, the, the cortisol, I think the highest ratings in the morning, right? So, yeah, it is. Yeah, so yeah. you have to be careful with that. I don't want to, I don't want to hook them up to all these, these strange things. And I want to do it in the classroom. I'm not going to be doing it in a laboratory. I want to do it in a real classroom environment. So mm. what what do you what do you think about that? Um, should I be worried about that, or is it one of those things that like like you kind of mentioned? You just have to have your excuses lined up, or you have to have your justifications lined up, or or do you see what my supervisors are saying? I kind of see what they're saying. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, <clears throat> at the same time, uh, because you're doing applied work in the real conditions, you know the, the kind of constraints that I talked about would apply to your work as well. The issue with Fitbit and similar sort of things is that they're not, obviously, as you know, they're not an EKG. It's a PPG signal. It's photoplethiograph. So it's doing, using light to detect the uh, the beat of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, obviously, if, you, if you've got a heart rate uh, and it's been sampled, you know, at a, at a decent rate, then then you can do different things with that. You know, you can look at things like heart rate variability. There's a whole, you know, area of electrocardiography where you can look at those things, especially if someone's in a sitting in a stationary position. So we've just done, uh, maybe in the last four or five years, we did a kind of driver stress thing on commuter driving, where we had a uh, we had people wearing basically uh, well, well, we had them wearing a PPG and an EKG in that particular study. So there's so what I'm saying is that you can expand your heart your your measure of heart rate to more than just beats per minute you can look at variability and other things that are relevant to that um in terms of other measures that you might want to use well you know there's there's uh, some pretty nice unobtrusive measures of uh skin conductance is a good measure i think of the symp- of sympathetic activation which is always fires when people get stressed so it's very sensitive to anxiety and stress and uh, there are wearable devices, wrist-worn devices. Um, I think one that MIT developed. Uh, that's it's quite expensive, but it is. It does look kind of quite solid to use. So you could consider adding another wearable. You probably get heart rate out of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I think is probably underrated, but it depends whether you have people speaking or not, is respiration rate. Hmm. Is because people do breathe sh- more shallow and faster when they start to get agitated, and sometimes they do weird things like hold the breath and stuff like that. So you can get. I mean, we've got a device. There's currently several devices like this, which are a chest strap worn under the clothes, mm-hmm. and that will measure. There's one. I think. It's, I think it's called bioharness. So that measures heart rate and it measures breathing rate in, in part of the same device. Hmm. So if you could get your hands on one of those, and it also measures temperature and it measures movement as well. Um, so, you know, they're pretty good for ambulatory, you know, for movement when, pe- when people are in, in, out in the real world. So I'd say go one of two routes, either add 
respiration or skin respiration is going to be a lot easier to add than skin conductance i think or um or expand your um the the range of measures that you're deriving from your heart rate now the reason why i came across this paper is because i was interested in correlating or exploring the correlation between self-reports and heart rate and mm. i found your paper to be one of the only ones that that used heart rate and that that me that brought me down the track of test anxiety now i'm not particularly that's not my main focus my my main focus right now is is language learning anxiety and actually another layer would be maybe performance anxiety um, mm. but i found that test anxiety has this strange relationship with language learning anxiety and i i had a question for you about this uh i i know you're not really into linguistics but so for example language learning anxiety researchers have classified test anxiety as a component of language learning anxiety and that's actually a kind of a problem right because test anxiety mm. researchers would say well test anxiety is, is is its own thing did you mm. have this strange uh viewpoint of the relationship between test anxiety and performance anxiety and how they maybe overlapped or didn't overlap did you do you have, do you have an opinion about that I, I, my my only opinion is that i think test anxiety is quite specific to a certain situation whereas um you know more general performance anxiety is is more generic in focus so you can have people i think who may have quite high levels of self-efficacy in most respects of their life you know that they feel that they will always get a positive outcome but there can be a particular thing whether it's learning a new language or trying to learn to drive or you know or, so, or even just kind of performing in front of an audience where they you know where they they, they struggle to overcome uh that the the stress of that particular environment so i think it's about the specificity mm. of of the term because i think one's very test anxiety is very specific to a situation where you're being evaluated mm. whereas you're talking about language learning anxiety it seems to me to be more of a kind of general self-efficacy thing where people think they can't do it but the problem is at least in japan there's this issue of of the fear of making mistakes and also mm. the the law of you know people sort of being one and harmony so there's mm. almost an evaluative scenario inside the social situation of the classroom I found so some of the, the like what you mentioned in this paper um you said uh where where's uh, external stimuli such as task demand internal physiological stimuli self-monitoring of behavior related cognitions and then you go on to say you know audience pressure competition rewards mm -hmm. or punishment um ego relevance and then the the sympath sympathetic activation of the nervousness the nervous system and increased self-monitoring during practical driving tests. So I find, you know, with Japanese students there, there's a lot of self-monitoring um, mm. almost within, within themselves in a social situation. So where they're, they are evaluating themselves almost like mm. a test in a social mm. situation. So that's why yeah. it's like, it's, it's, it's confounding sometimes to, to separate the two. Yeah. But is it, but the same thing holds is that, you know, attention is, is finite and limited. Hmm. And if that if you're devoting part of your attention to that self-monitoring process, I see. Then then that impacts on performance. So in my study, I'm going to be having them, you know, mark on a Likert scale on like a scale of one to ten. How nervous are you feeling? You know, mm. the, 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 
10 different types of feelings. Um, mm. And then I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, you know, line up where, where the heart rate uh, says, I'm going to do that three times. Um, in yeah. your, in your study, you use the, the Spielberger state trait anxiety yeah. inventory. Now mm -hmm. you did that before you did that before to sort of distinguish if people had, had state or trait um, anxiety. Is that why you did that before you didn't have them do it during the test or after the test, right? It was just before. Yeah, we no, no, we did it. We did it both. So we could, we used a trait anxiety test. Uh, we did that before the experiment even started. And obviously in our particular experiment, we were looking at the differences between the group who passed the test and failed the test. So we wanted to know, is that because of the test or because of the type of person they were? So, so it was important for us to have a trait measure of anxiety uh, before we even got into the testing. Uh, so that, and, and also what we did, as I remember, uh, is that we, we then, in subsequent testing, uh, we could use trait anxiety as a covariate on the statistics. So, so, and then, so we had trait anxiety was measured before, and then state anxiety was measured after all three sessions, the normal, the mock test, and the real test. I see. I, I think that's a really good idea. <laughs> I know yeah. this is a strange thing for to, a podcast interview, but I almost feel like I, I want to ask you questions about my own study because I was just planning <laughs> on taking, so they would do a self-report at the beginning of class, a self-report mm -hmm. before the performance, finger quotes. I'm not allowed mm -hmm. to do a real performance like you did. And then yeah. um, a self-report after the performance. And then I would be able to have those three points and mm -hmm. I'd be able to sort of try to, to line up the heart rate. But then, having the the state trait anxiety inventory to incorporate that as well i think would be, would be really useful so would you recommend doing it the way the way you did it or would would you looking back would you have done it differently uh like i said i've not done much in this area since but the spielberger scale is is you know been used very very widely i'm always i'm not a big fan of reinventing the wheel if there's a test a tool out there that seems to work and and it worked very well for us, you know. It was and and if you look at the Spielberger test, you know the trait and the state versions of it are almost identical. This is just the only difference is it asks you how do you feel generally versus how do you feel right now. Mm -hmm. So there was a nice consistency between those two for me. And uh, so so you see, so obviously the Spielberger thing just gives you a measure of anxiety. Now, again, if you're inventing your own scales you know, to do, to look at different feelings, which sounds like what you're trying to do with your study, um, then, you know, I'd advise you to perhaps look at some mood scales mm -hmm. that are, that have already been developed and have already been validated. Uh, so you, so, you know, so you kind of got, um, you've got different components of mood that you can look at. Uh, so, you know, normally it's kind of like activation level versus valence or something like that. But, Again, it's. Uh, I, I think once you, if you try and in my experience, this is really through when when I was at Loughborough, I did a lot of work on measuring sleepiness in drivers, and we came up with all these self-report scales for sleepiness. And I've done the same sort of thing with workload and different sorts of things. When you, this would certainly happen with us when we devised our own scale for sleepiness. We tried to be really precise, so we had like you know twelve or fourteen different items, but they all just correlated. You know, they all just did not—they didn't really discriminate. Mm -hmm. And so, if someone else has already done 
the heavy lifting with the psychometrics and got a test up, which a lot of people have in mood in the mood world, then you know I'd say perhaps have a look at that as something that you could use if you can find a translation and so on. Well, thank you for that. That's that's uh, that that's great advice. We are going to use Panis scales mm. um, for. That's for, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then okay. the the so my my initial study, I, I had them rate on a scale of one to ten. How nervous are you? Yeah. And we're 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 trying to use that sort of idea in in, in a future study. Um, I think I told you be, before that I I'm going to have both 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 groups wear heart rate monitors. One group would self report. My, yeah. my my hypothesis is that you know quantifying nervousness would actually uh, reduce nervousness, like being able to sort of conceptualize something that is an internal thing as an external thing. And so mm. I'm trying to incorporate that side of quantifying nervousness, but also incorporating like the Panis scales. But what's interesting too is, you know, Panis is on a scale of one to five. I'm mm. interested on a scale of one to 10. I'm sure mm. there's a scale on a one to a thousand. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm curious in that, like, well, if, if you said, oh, how are you feeling on a scale of one to a thousand? Would that change mm. how you would, you would perceive your own feelings? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I think people people just do a five point scale almost. I think they just split it down because you can't. I mean, what's the difference between nine hundred and a thousand? Right, just overthinking it, I guess. It's just it's just that people cannot introspect at that sort of level of specificity. I don't think. Now, now you you were so like you said, this isn't really your 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 main focus now. And mm-hmm. this wasn't something you did so much of, but you you obviously are so familiar with all the terminology and everything. I was just wondering when when you were writing when you're writing up the paper and you're writing up sort of the the intro, mm. how did you craft which citations you used? Because I I find I'm overwhelmed. Um, I'm kind <laughs> of new to the psycho you know, psychology field. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually was in linguistics, but I couldn't find a supervisor in linguistics to take my project. It turns out my project is psych- psych- psychology. So I'm kind yeah. of playing catch up reading and I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it all. You, you chose uh Baumeister, uh, choking. Um, yeah. maybe I'm not pronouncing this right. A, a, Zinc, E, Y, S, I, think, I think, yeah. Very famous British. Well, that, that's Michael I think. Yeah. Hans I was his dad who invented extroversion, introversion. So, but, yeah, but I, yeah, they, they, so yeah, they, they, I mean, again, this was, these were people I'd read when I was doing my PhD, I think, as I remember. I mean, you, so I, okay, but it, it's very, it was very succinct and very easy to read and Thank you me. made it very clear and simple. I, I find that's one thing I'm really struggling with in my writing now is because I'm trying to learn about everything and write about it. It's hard yeah. for me to choose which citations, like what you did was really, was really great because it was very simple. Uh, I mean, not simple is maybe not the best word, but it was easy and clear to read. The setup was clear. It didn't mm-hmm. didn't seem like it, it. You 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 were using a lot of minutia or, or drifting into the weeds. It, it was just you know very straightforward, easy to read, even if you weren't really <laughs> familiar with the area. And I'm struggling with that now. Um, like which citations to use, which which not to use. Do you have any ad, ad, advice on that? How do you you know? I'm sure you read you know hundreds and hundreds of papers. Mm-hmm. And how, how did you decide which ones you used to sort of justify your your points? Oh well, first of all, thank you. It's very nice of you to say. Uh, but there's, there's two things, really. I think, obviously, what you see on the printed page is not what's under the hood, which is all the notes and, you know, all the reading and the notes and the selection. So <clears throat> you talked before about, you know, you're trying to express things while you're trying to collate information. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I have normally split those two things into two distinct phases. Is that you, you know, you do your note taking, you know, your your basically your collation of of references, uh, and you make lots and lots and lots of notes. Uh, because I'm not a big fan of going back and rereading papers afterwards. Uh, so it's a case of reading a paper, asking yourself how relevant it is for what you're doing, and then extracting only that part of the paper that is relevant to actually what you're doing. Because when you review literature, you're going to have stuff that's generally relevant. You're going to have stuff that is not that relevant, but some aspects of it pertain to what you're actually doing. And then you've got stuff like, in my case, it was the the, the, uh, the Barmeister stuff on choking, which is absolutely bang on what you're interested in. Because obviously we were interested in why do people fail this driving test? So choking was a big, was a big thing for us. Um, so there's that level of specificity. So you make lots of notes and so on. And then you, um, when you come to writing the thing, you do two things. You give yourself very strict word limits, uh, word limit, because obviously when you're writing papers in particular, you have to be quite concise. You're probably no, not going to go over over 800 or 1,000 words for an introduction, say, for example. And in psychology, as you know, the convention is probably to over-reference rather than under-reference. Mm-hmm. So, we, we, you, know, so, so you, you have your references kind of lined up. But the most important thing, I think, about any sort of you know this sort of scientific writing is is to have a, a strand through the narrative strand that people can follow you don't assume that one of the big mistakes that we all make is that we assume knowledge on, on the part of the reader that they don't have so it's a case of making sure that like you like almost anyone could could follow it uh and that it has a very clear narrative structure where you start off with a general issue and then you review the literature and whilst reviewing the literature you get more and more specific until you come to the final paragraph of your introduction which is therefore i did a study to look at this and people understand exactly why you got there at that point does that make sense yeah i mean it's it's something i i need to 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 work on it's um it, uh, it's a deep... practitioner, unfortunately. It's a, it's, it's a doing skill. It's not a. It's not something you can learn from a book. It's a process that you have to kind of go through and go through uh, and 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 narrow it down. I'd um, like to one day look back and or in that present moment think, wow, I'm, I'm I can write very clearly and succinctly, and it's not minutia, and it's it's easy to read and clear to read, but yeah. it doesn't sound like I'm dumb either, right? I think some people try to overcompensate. Yeah, and I they agree. use you know really you know I don't even know what the, these words are, and it's hard for me to follow, and I'm supposed to be you know studying it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that can happen, and uh, I, but I think it's important, especially if you're doing applied work, which you hope has some relevance to people in the real world. I mean, so for example, the work that you're doing from the sounds of it, you know. You, it's good, obviously, if the academic community can get something from that, but it would also be good if educators can get something from that. So you don't want to alienate people who may not have the same background to you. And a lot of the work that I've done has been, been kind of quite applied. I've not really done that much theoretical work, which is where you do get kind of get very technical. So it's, uh, you know, it depends on who you think your audience are. Well, all right. So the results of this were something you you probably hypothesized that the people who failed the test had higher 
uh, rates of uh, heart rate than, than, than people who pass the test. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that the main gist of, of the, the findings? Yeah, I think, I think it's important for people to understand the British driving test and how it works is that for, obviously the, for the British, uh, this particular time uh, has changed a little bit now. Uh, you, you, you basically would do the test in the car that you learn in, in your exam, in your driving instructor's car. But a person comes <clears throat> and they sit with you in the car and they have a clipboard and they're watching you drive and they tell you where to drive and that you have to do, you have to drive on the open road. And then in, in the British driving test, there are certain maneuvers that you have to do. So you have to, you know, be able to do, to stop the car suddenly to do an emergency stop. You have to be able to reverse around a corner. You have to be able to park the car. Um, and people, most people find it stressful. I know I certainly did when I had to do it and it's stressful partly because you've paid some money, uh, not a, not, not a big amount of money, but a, a significant amount of money for most people, uh, to do the test. Your family and friends and everyone knows you're doing the test. <laughs> right. <Yeah. clears throat> and and yeah. you have a feeling, because you're out on the road driving around, really anything can happen. And if you get it wrong, you have failed. You know, because if you commit what we call, what they call major, major serious faults, you know, you, 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 you might get away with one of those, but you're not going to get away with more than one or two of those. So... It is, it is, and the other thing that happens, of course, is that the examiner is very close to you, you know, in terms of physical proximity. So you've got a combination of different things that that make the driving test particularly stressful. The social stress, there's a there's a fact that you've got skin in the game because you paid money, and that people know, so you've got some social pressure as well, and that this person sitting close to you, and you think that you could fail, you know, if you if you make enough, if you make more than one or two bad mistakes, you know, you failed. So, so what we were expecting to see was kind of exactly what we saw is that when you put people in that particular situation, the resting heart rate, which was about 80, I'm looking at the chart now, it's about 82 for most people, 85. So the resting heart rate, even, even for, for everybody goes up to about 120 beats a minute. So, Heart rate increases for everybody. It's just that those people who failed, it increased more. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting, and we didn't get to put this in the paper because of the way we did the analysis, is that the people who failed, they had a very high heart rate just sitting in the car waiting for the examiner to get in and sit next to them. Mm. So it was uh, anticipatory uh, anxiety that we were coping with. And... The reason I mentioned the detail about the sorts of things that they do is that if you've got a very high heart rate and the sympathetic nervous system is is fired up, basically, um, doing those fine-tuned maneuvers can be quite challenging because when you're reversing around a corner, for example, uh, or when you're... Uh, there's another thing you do where you have to start a car on a hill, and we have... We, we most cars here. Well, in those days, most cars had a, a manual clutch, mm-hmm. so you had to do it manually. So that was um, that's kind of fine fine tuned motor control, and that can be difficult to do when when the heart is beating so fast because you've got a bit of tremble on the limbs, as well. Did you did you think to 
to strap on a heart rate monitor to, to Kim Houston because she's really putting her life in her hands, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kim was, uh, Kim was teaching them anyway, but I've, I've done similar things where we, I mean, I've been out in cars where people have had no sleep the night before and stuff like that. And it now, can be kind of quite stressful. Now you, yeah, I, I was researching uh, some of your other projects. You, you were doing research about lack of sleep and alcohol influence yeah. on driving now i i assume that would be in a simulator or something i mean people no, were, we, you had people drink and really drive and like well i guess it was a closed course i, I haven't read that paper yeah. yet that's yeah yeah that was a that was a closed course oh my uh, gosh that was a closed course fun. yeah it was it was interesting because people it was the first time i'd ever collected eeg data as well i remember ah, that okay so not only did i have drunk people i was trying to get this <laughs> quite archaic eeg apparatus to work at the time um but we also wanted we we did several studies of you know of tired drivers mm-hmm. and um, and one of the studies we did I uh, I actually called up the police chief of the area for we have like what we call motorway police so the police who are on the roads okay uh, and I said basically what can we do in our car that would not you know that would be legal if we want to study this and at that time the police had this shift system where they. They uh, they worked a whole week of nights and then they were on duty three hours later. So they had this crazy shift system where they people would leave work at, once a month. They'd leave work at six o'clock in the morning and be back on duty at ten. Jeez. So he said, "Use our drivers." So we did a whole study with police, oh. very very highly trained drivers, on a motorway, which are the high speed roads in the UK. Um, we always had. Um, a co-pilot, so a trained driving instructor on a dual control car, mm-hmm. uh, and and so that was an interesting experience because again we were doing a lot of we were doing EEG, uh, so you, you can imagine what people thought when a, a, a policeman in an unmarked vehicle drove past them with wires coming off his head, and <laughs> uh, and and there were a couple of times where um, people committed basically speeding, people were speeding on the motorway, right. As, and as an experimenter, the officer made me write down the <laughs> license plate. <laughs> so we were also doing some policing as part of the study as well. So uh, yeah, so we had we have done some stuff like that where it is, uh, yeah, where uh, experiments I would not probably repeat these days. You with, know, uh, with the alcohol study, how did you how did you set that up? What what alcohol did you serve? Did you like? I'm interested in that. Like. <laughs> Well, we did we did two alcohol studies. One which was on the test track, which wasn't a great success, to be honest, because um, it was just very difficult to get. We 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 had a car that was all wired up. We got very little out of the driving data, but we also did a study just before I left Loughborough uh, that was in that was in Human Factors in 1999, and it's one of the first studies where we compared tired people to drunk people, but we did it in a driving simulator. Which is which has the 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 the, the more detrimental effect. No, they're both pretty bad, to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, the, in terms of, we were looking at weaving in the lane. I see. So you get a lot of, uh, the drunk people would weave quite a bit. So mm-hmm. they'd weave frequently, but perhaps not by that much. Whereas the tired people, when they went off, out of the lane, they they would go out of the lane for longer before they correct, but they would correct and go back in. So it's uh, the, the different sorts of impairments. The, the big thing that makes alcohol the worst by far is that when people are tired, at least in the early stages of, of tiredness, they know they're tired and they compensate. 
Uh, can. Whereas, of course, people who are drunk, they just think they're, they're great. They're driving fine. They're very confident. They're very happy. And that's the problem, you know, really. Well, speaking of alcohol, so on your Twitter, at SH Faircloth, um, yeah. you retweeted something recently. Is that one of your students is doing a, a survey on, on alcohol? No, no, that's a colleague. That was a colleague. I've got a, a colleague who's a psychopharmacologist, and she does stuff on alcohol and drugs. So she's that's not me. I haven't... Uh, I haven't gone into that that stuff for about twenty years now. Really, the 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 certainly the alcohol stuff. Well, you asked me originally how did we do the alcohol? We did the alcohol with uh, with vodka and lemonade. I think it was. Um, that's how we administrated the alcohol, and we also had a placebo condition in that. So we just had a glass of lemonade where we wipe vodka around the top of the glass, so it could smell a little bit of alcohol. But they, as you can tell from what I'm saying. Um, Setting up the alcohol trials and then dealing with all the ethics because then you've got to bring people to your lab and get them to go home and make sure they don't do anything stupid afterwards that you could be responsible for. Uh, it's a bit of an ethical nightmare doing those sorts of studies, I think. All right. Well, um, we're kind of running running out of time. So I kind of want to go – I want to leave this paper. I had, I had a couple other questions for you if you don't mind. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, to touch on on, no. on the paper, anxiety no, no, performance I... in the British driving test? No, the only thing, no, I mean, I think looking at the paper again, being honest, I was a little bit surprised that we didn't have that many participants. I know it was difficult to get participants because obviously they were, they were pupils. So, you know, 13, 14, I was a little bit unhappy looking at that again, that we, we didn't have that many participants involved in the study. And, you know, I, you know, I would say, so what we found is a little bit tentative, probably. Uh, and I, but I don't know if it's been replicated at all. I don't. I've not seen any sign of it being replicated. Well, the thing that I really like about it is in test anxiety research, it's it's actually quite hard to find. At least that I found it. It's at least in like classroom studies, it's hard to find a study that is based around a real test. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and so yours was a real test, and there was real yeah. stakes. Like you said, they had skin in the game. Yeah. Which, which, yeah like yeah. for for me, um, I'm not really doing test anxiety. But even with the language learning anxiety, they, I had to make it clear that this would not affect their grade in any way and that yeah. this we're just monitoring something, which is fine. I can work around that. But yours is one of the only ones that I found, which is, which is a real test. Even the, the French, uh, there's another paper sort of based on yours, and that was a okay. mock French exam. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a real exam. And you have mock SATs and mock this and mock that. I think it's maybe yeah. hard for test anxiety research to, researchers to use a real test. Because for all the ethics or whatever, you know, the, the hoops got to jump through. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's unfortunate because, you know, that's the real phenomenon, you know. Uh, I think there's quite a lot of stuff on test anxiety in sports mm -hmm. psychology. So that's where we got the choking stuff from and, and so on. But, uh, but yeah, I think that is a problem. But again, I can also see the other side of it is that uh, you wouldn't want the fact that you're testing people to interfere with their performance. All right, so I got a, I got a few questions for you. They might just be random, and they might not connect. Um, okay. All right. Well, first of all, and if I have anything wrong, please let me know. But you wrote you wrote a paper in 2014 where you indicated that you think physiological data should remain confidential. Yeah. Now, yeah. what what do you think about Google buying Fitbit? Yeah, uh, I I have some qualms about all of this. I mean, that 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 article originally was inspired by um, the. Connect system that Microsoft brought out for the Xbox. Okay. Oh, um, right, right. Well, so they can monitor heart based. rates, right? Yeah, they can monitor heart rates through the camera because you can do it for the blush response in the face. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And and this brings up an interesting dilemma, an interesting issue, because normally if you wear a Fitbit, you know you're wearing a Fitbit. But if someone points a camera at you, you haven't got control mm-hmm. over that. Now, obviously, as you know, when we collect data in labs as academics, we get signed consent and people are fully informed and so on. Um, so, you know, what's going on now is that people are being asked to to basically donate to these vast uh, databases. Uh, so Fitbit being one example, but there's, there's literally hundreds of others as well. Um, and what bothers me about that is that you don't have control over what that data is used for afterwards. So say, for example, you wear your Fitbit and you wear it every day and you send all your heart rate data over to Google. And then at some point in the future, Google sells that information onto a medical insurance company. And let's say, for example, it's not anonymized and they could track back to you and maybe change your insurance premiums if they detect that you're unfit or that you have a heart arrhythmia or something like that. So it's so the data, there's a bit of creep, there's mission creep in the data about what it can actually be used for. Um, you can get quite a, if you have a heart rate, you have heart rate data from people and you know the location, you can get quite a bit of information from that about, you know, how, how, whether they're exerting themselves and, and so on. And I just think all this data is it's our data. And if if you, if you decide to donate it to Google, that's fine, but it shouldn't be a condition of using the hardware. All right, you have a, you have a quote here um, from from a previous interview. You say, "I'm interested in technology that monitors covert signals from the human nervous system in order to create mm. a dynamic model of the user state, which subsequently informs a process of intelligent adaptation on the part of technology." Yeah. Um. So can you? Can you explain that a bit? Are you are you focused on how it can help humans, or are you interested in the the human computer relationship and how it can help each other? Well, but both of those things really. I mean, I spent a lot of time at Loughborough uh, measuring psychophysiology and neurophysiology in order to understand whether the driver is too sleepy to drive, or too drunk to drive, or too overloaded to work, and so on. Uh, and then. Later on, uh, when I came to uh, Liverpool, I came across some work. Well, actually, just before I came to Liverpool, I came across some work that had been performed at uh, NASA Langley by a guy called Alan Pope. And Alan had taken signals from an EEG and he'd fed those signals into an autopilot for uh, for a simulated aircraft. And the idea was, is that you can get to use it as you probably know, autopilots are great, but people get complacent when they use them. So the EEG was making an assessment of how engaged someone was with the task. Hmm. And if they were engaged, then the autopilot was on. But then if the EEG indicated they were disengaged, it threw them into manual mode and they had to fly the plane manually. So what he's trying to do really is to use the EEG as a signal in order to keep the person in a state of high engagement. So it's a negative control loop really, where you're taking implicit data from the from the pilot and feeding that into a technical device on a cockpit. And so I picked up that idea and I wrote, I've probably done a, more, a lot more writing on, on than anything else I've written on something called physiological computing and more latterly neuroadaptive technology. And they're both the same idea. The idea is that you take signals from, from the brain and the body and that you make them an implicit interaction with a piece of technology. Um, so this could be, you know, this, this could be to 
keep people safe. So for using 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 it for, with pilots or with drivers or with people working in nuclear power stations or whatever. Uh, but it can also be used for fun. People can use it for games. So, you know, to, we've done some stuff on uh, like a, a version of Tetris that runs on the EEG so that if you're bored, the Tetris gets more interesting. Uh, uh, but the general idea is that you're kind of measuring the state of the user in real time in order to get a system, a technological system, to respond to that data in a way that's intelligent. So, and, and, and in a positive way, to, to entertain people, to keep people safe, to keep people healthy, those well, kind of things. And you also have a recent study where you were, it was an adaptive gaming system to distract people from pain. And you found that yeah. the more difficult the game was, the more it distracted them, correct? Yeah, yeah. And so we've not published it yet, but we have a, a version of that game now which runs on a signal from the brain, which is called functional near-infrared spectrography, which is basically the, the amount of uh, oxygenated blood in the cortex. So we found that um, we can make the game, the behavior of the game depends on the level of, of attention that the person is giving the game. So the idea is, is that the person plays the game, the game ramps up its difficulty to the point where the person is really totally engaged with the game, and then the doctor sticks a needle in someone's arm. And maybe last question. This is I was really interested to see this. This is something that I'm interested in as well. Wearable, you're interested in wearable sensors to be used to facilitate management of mental health problems. Um, I I can see how this can really be helpful in the future, and and that's sort of the track of my own research. Uh, whether it can help people with performance or even um, you know you know basic phobias or or you know social anxiety disorders, things like that. You're interested in that as well. Yeah, I think I'm interested in we've we've been trying to get a project off the ground for a while now on using combining data from wearable devices, including physiology, but also looking at movement patterns and sleep and stuff like that. So people have a tangible measure of their mental well-being. Now, we did a study, myself and a colleague, Chelsea Dobbins, did a study uh, a few years ago now where we had people doing a commuter drive to in and out of Liverpool, in and out of work. And we took a whole range of cardiovascular measures that measure. Basically, we're trying to measure a process in the body called inflammation that's associated with anxiety and stress. And inflammation in the long term is not good for health, mm. as you might imagine. And we were particularly interested in when people got inflammation tends to happen when people get into traffic jams and holdups and they get angry mm -hmm. and frustrated. And so we collected all this data and then we presented it to people as a visualization. So imagine a Google map where, of your route to work where it is color-coded depending on your stress levels at different points in the route. Mm -hmm. And then we have people interact with that visualization and then measure if they were able. And what we found basically was that the heart rates were lower when they got stuck in traffic after they'd interacted with that visualization. That is so interesting. That's exactly what I'm interested in about how people, yeah. if you label something, you interact with your own feelings, it actually can calm yourself down. It's very interesting. Yeah. So you're using the, the sensor data as a learning tool. And mm. so it's a way of figuring out how to make that data visualization so people engage with it and want to engage with it. And so people can learn from it as well. So sometimes I think, certainly we were interested in on, in driver anger. So I wasn't crazy about the idea of doing real-time huh. indicators because obviously you tell people they're angry, they just get more angry. Right. Uh, so it's a case of presenting the data when they're in a mood to reflect on it and to think about 
well, why was it I got so angry at that point? And, and then when they get in that situation again, they think, ah, I remember what my heart rate looked like at this point, so maybe I should try and just take it easy. All right. Well, this was fascinating. Again, the, the article, uh, the core of today's episode was anxiety and performance in the British driving test. If you'd like to read it, I'd recommend going to uh, Dr. Fairclough's website, physiologicalcomputing.org, and there's the publications tab. They're all there. You also have a podcast. Um, mm. I listened, to, I listened to, to one of the episodes. Um, so if, if anyone out there wants to listen to someone much more intelligent than myself, I would recommend sure. uh, this, your <laughs> podcast. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very deep stuff. I, I think I need to do some studying before I can, I can listen well, to some of those episodes. Let me, let me explain something. It's kind of like what, the reason I listen to a lot of podcasts anyway, and I thought it would be nice to do one. And I was kind of intrigued by the idea of doing one. Um, and when you go to conferences, you, you get into these kind of informal, but kind of deep discussions with other researchers who are doing similar work to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to convey that in podcast form. So, uh, so what I normally do for that podcast is that I am normally having face-to-face -face conversations with people and, uh, and yeah, I, yeah, we do get into quite deep detail uh so it is very much for the community of people who do that who do that work i would like to do more for a general audience i'm trying to kind of work my way towards that um but at the moment we're going to we're starting with these deep things which is again it's just meant to replicate an informal conversation in a bar at, after a conference so that's what we're trying to do with that with that podcast well, that's cool. I mean, that's something that uh, Chris and I, the, the other uh, interviewer, we're, we're thinking we'd, we'd like to make this more of a, a conference thing where we yeah. could actually book a presentation slot and have a panel and make it yeah. sort of a live podcast. Um, that's, I, I, we were thinking the same thing. How, yeah, you could have like sort of you, you can grab people on the side and do some podcasts at, at conferences. But wouldn't it be yeah. cool to, to have a sort of a live podcast like you know comedians do or you know it's it's strange that it hasn't really taken off in academia it seems like it it, it could be there as a presentation yeah. but it doesn't seem like anyone's really doing that or am i wrong have you seen it at other no, conferences I, I, I don't think i don't think many people are doing it and i think people some people from my colleagues who know me well i think are a little bit bemused that i'm doing it uh but i, I do like those things i like those informal conversations and that we can you know, what do we try to do as well, as well as talking about the deep technical stuff? We, it's a very rambling conversation, very open-ended conversation. So I try not to make it too structured so we can go into some some deep stuff without intending to. It's sometimes a little bit difficult to try and find a space to record in. That's the only problem, you know, when you're kind of on the road carrying a, a microphone around with your laptop. Um, so... Uh, so, yeah, and I'm a little bit behind, actually. I've got a couple more i got to get out because, obviously, the lockdown has meant that I probably won't be any doing any more until the end of the year now. So, well, uh, yeah. So, again, it's Dr. Uh, Stephen Fairclough, and the website is physiologicalcomputing.org. I can go ahead and put your – I'll put that, that link on the, the show notes, and I'll also put your email. If, is that all right if people want to contact yeah, you? With some... Yeah, it's all on the website anyway, so, yeah, that's fine. Thanks for coming on Lost in Citations, and hopefully I'll see you at one of these uh, human-computer interaction conferences in the future. You're welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, 
please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.